Good morning, Dr. Fitzgerald. I'm so happy to have you on my podcast, Leadership in Medicine. Thank you for taking time out for this. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And as we know, you're a very accomplished uh, professor of obstetrics and gynecology. And just for the introductions, you are a pelvic reconstructive surgeon at the Mackie Women's Hospital, University of Pittsburgh. That's correct. Also known as urogynecology. It's a hybrid of urology and gynecology. And I came to that through an OBGYN training pathway. Right. Uh, we would definitely learn to, uh, love to learn more about that. Um, so tell us a little bit about before your medical school, you went um, to Penn State University, right? And you earned yes, a dual right. degree in neurobiology and women's studies with emphasis on women's health. Yes. So that was very formative for me. Um, I really knew I wanted to be um, a physician when I started my undergraduate years, but I wasn't entirely certain, you know, what I wanted that to look like. I thought I might want to do orthopedics, but I also knew that I was very passionate about women's health. I had done a lot of like activism in women's health, little things. As a high school kid, I grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of uh, friends whose parents were physicians and were very involved in the March for Women's Lives. Um, so that was very much always part of something that I cared a lot about. And I'm also the oldest of an eight kid family and I have five younger sisters and my mom is one of seven, um, seven girls, seven women. I have a lot of aunts. There's a lot of women in my family. Um, so I, you know, firsthand saw like how much they would talk about things in having to do with their health. And it was very obvious that even these educated women had very little idea about their health and what was going on with their bodies and how they change over a lifetime. So anyway, when I was at Penn State, um, I was very lucky. I found, um, I was in the honors college. So I found a thesis mentor who was a professor in both the biobehavioral health department and the women's studies department. And she had this um, longitudinal cohort study that had been going on for almost 70 years at that point on the menopausal transition. And I, it's totally um, probably not very common that a college age student gets very interested in menopause, but she really showed me from a healthcare utilization and research standpoint that menopause is almost like puberty and that it's this giant transition um, for women that is very understudied, very much not like fully understood, has a lot of social um, stigma, fires around it. Yeah, exactly. But it also is this enormous opportunity for like social, cultural, political change because women in their perimenopausal and menopausal years are unlike men who may be, and I hope this changes, but um, you know, maybe hit their sort of strides in like their thirties and forties women, like really enter into this like powerful part of their trajectory as people, um, right around the time they're going through menopause, their kids are out of the house and maybe they really like know who they are and what they, um, you know, their values are. So anyway, so I wrote, uh, my thesis with her, I ended up like picking up a women's studies major in addition to my neurobiology, which of course I had because I was pre-med and 
who isn't a biology major when they're pre-med. So I added women's studies and Penn State is such a big school with so many amazing diverse professors that they actually had a women's health track. And so most of the classes I took, I, I actually got a bachelor of science in women's studies and took classes in the politics of reproduction and women's mental health um, and lots of other ways in which like the experience of being female in this world affects your biology and like your biological pathways. So that was super interesting for me. And I realized at that time, particularly looking at my neurobiology classes through this women's studies lens, Mm -hmm. that the way women process pain and also the biases we hold towards women presenting in pain. Yes. Had a lot of work to do and that scientists and doctors didn't really understand women's pain and that women have a lot more conditions than men do of invisible pain. And the way we accept women's pain is also so different. So it's like a two hit hypothesis. We not only like don't know a lot about women's pain and they have these hidden pain diseases that we don't understand, but we also don't want to believe women who are in pain at baseline, even if they have a broken ankle. So like something so visible to us. And so it just like stacks the experience of hurting against women, you know, negatively from the get-go. So that was sort of how I got into that. And then in my medical school years, I kept doing research in that regard and kept it going through residency fellowship and now being an attending surgeon. So that's how I got here, I guess. Um, To have, you know, my... The whole idea was to create this platform where, you know, uh, physicians can talk about leadership, particularly women, you know, and there are lots of, this is exactly the topics that I wanted to discuss because uh, they're not very, you know, people are not very open to discussing, especially pain management. And I've seen it in my own experiences also when women end up in ER, um, how dismissive people can be, even if she's, you know, I know someone who nearly died because she had a topic pregnancy, but you know, they totally dismissed it. Oh, you know, you, she's just being hysterical. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she ha- probably has psych, you know, <laughs> she needs a psych reference or, you know, it, how it's- She has cramps. Yeah. It's like, oh, everybody wants to chalk women's pelvic pain up to, to cramps, to like these normal amounts of pain we're expected to just deal with because we're female. Yeah. But really all that reflects is the ignorance of the field of medicine that we just don't understand women's pain, that it's more difficult to understand. It's more complicated. It's not like physically hanging outside of our body the way it is (laughs) for men, you know, maybe we'll get into this more, but you know, if a man comes in testicular pain, it's external. It's like on the outside and women like, sorry for being born with my organs on the inside of me, but that means that you need to put your thinking cap on and you need to get some more imaging. You need to think more critically about your differential. Um, without just saying, oh, it's cramps. The only thing that does is show me the ignorance of the person taking care of that woman. Right. Um, And then um, segue, this is a great segue into my next question. Um, You mentioned that there should be a multidisciplinary pain management bundle for people having acute on chronic pain flare. That is example, endometriosis, right? Presenting to the ED that would prevent considerable distress. Uh, for both patient and the provider. 
Yes. Remember you tweeted that and I really loved it. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more, like, what do you have in mind? Like, what do you suggest would be a good Sure. Thing? Well, you know, this is something that like in a practical sense and on a, in a research sense, I'm working on at my own institution. So I want to just disclaim a little bit quickly that like when it comes to endometriosis, well, endometriosis is a disease that needs to be taken care of by multiple types of providers. No one physician or surgeon can manage endometriosis. Um, I'm a pelvic floor specialist and I specialize in bladder and pain syndromes of the female pelvic organs, in addition to being a surgeon for those organs. But I do not surgically excise endometriosis. The people who do that um, at the highest level are minimally invasive gynecologic surgeons. And so um, where I work at the University of Pittsburgh at McGee, we have a multidisciplinary team where I see patients alongside twice a month at the moment, hopefully more in the future, because it's a lot to get a big team together with their schedules in clinic. Um, but with Dr. Nicole Dinellen, she's a MIGS uh, surgeon who does endometriosis uh, excision and management. And I also see them with a clinical psychologist who's trained in the PTSD and the sort of particular um, effect that chronic pain has on other mental health disorders and a pelvic floor physical therapist. We see patients all together. Um, And in addition to that, we are actively working on getting funding and recruiting um, transitional pain providers, uh, anesthesiologists who are trained in pain psychology Mm -hmm. and um, psychologists who are also trained in pain management. And the reason that's so important, um, and we'll get back to your question about my tweet, which is like when women come to the ER, like we need a multidisciplinary bundled approach. The goal with something like endometriosis or any chronic pain disease is to not to cure it because it's rare that you can really reverse the cause of a chronic disease or chronic pain syndrome. We'll get back to the estrogen piece. I think we're going to talk about that. Ways in which we can be more aggressive early on before a pain condition becomes chronic. But something like endometriosis is a chronic disease, especially for women who are premenopausal and having cyclic hormones or maybe, you know, can't be on some sort of hormonal suppression. So the, the idea behind that tweet is that number one, we need to be keeping these women out of their flares as best we can. So that requires multidisciplinary, like endocrinologic care. So yeah. some type of hormonal suppression and going through the risks and benefits of what we have available for endometrial and hormonal suppression. Right. But then also um, addressing the ways in which chronic pain becomes centrally sensitized. So this is really, I think, where a lot of my research was like from an early standpoint, this concept that you could have a peripheral pain condition, something coming from a specific organ like the uterus, and then your peripheral and central nervous system become imprinted with pain signaling pathways that are extremely hard to undo. And so then not only are you more sensitized to pain, but the, the pain is, is within your your spinal cord, like it's very hard to reverse that. So in order to treat these things and these women who come to us, I'll make a note here that endometriosis in particular takes 
seven to nine years after symptoms start to be diagnosed. So that's seven to nine years that women are feeling pain and these pathways are getting more deeply and more deeply ingrained in their, their nervous system and their spinal cord in their brain and their peripheral nerves, which upregulate a lot of receptors that are really hard to downregulate once they're firing and like being coded for. Um, basically you need to kind of come at it at like a multimodal approach. So like you need something centrally acting to manage the pain, to try to downregulate these, these pathways. You need something peripherally acting something for like these small, like PNC fibers that have been upregulated in the end organ. You need some sort of hormonal suppression. Um, you need to treat anything that could create an acute on chronic flare, like a UTI. So like, how do we prevent those in these women who have all this pain? How do we downregulate all of the musculoskeletal pain that's surrounding the pelvic organs? You need physical therapy for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, does there need to be a surgical component to this as well? And that depends on the pain that people are feeling and sort of their goals for their life. But do they need to have endometriosis excision? Do they need to have some sort of pelvic floor procedure or an injection or some sort of installation, some sort of locally acting medication that may have you know, more than one medication that might have like multiple different mechanisms, a steroid plus a pain medication, plus an anti-inflammatory, you know, maybe something with a antimicrobial component if there's a microbiome piece. So you just need to sort of hit these women. This is what all my research is on now from all these directions all at once. And no one, you know, I'm trained in gynecology and surgery and a little bit in pain, but, uh, an anesthesiologist trained in, in pain psych may know a lot more pharmacologically than I do about the spinal cord, about how nerves respond to pain, about the chronicity of pain, about acute on chronic flares and the mechanism of that. Um, so putting together like a bundle for how to break that in the ER would require a multidisciplinary team. And there is some research on it. I'm working now with, um, some amazing anesthesia providers at my institution. Like, do we need to use things that palliative care uses like cannabinoids? Like, is there a role for like medical marijuana in these flares? Is there a role for ketamine? Lots of other like really sort of novel um, pharmacologic agents that if a woman did present in an acute on chronic flare that we could have in our toolkit that aren't opioids Yeah. And And I'll add like the very last piece to this bundle is validation and understanding, like having these women come in and being looked at as drug seeking. If they were seen by an ER provider who said, Oh, this woman has a diagnosis of endometriosis on her charts. We have an endometriosis pathway for these, you know, these women, like they come in and they feel safe because this person's saying, I know you have endometriosis and you're in a flare. I know you're not drug seeking. Like this is a hideous disease. And, you know, here's what, you know, we can offer you so that we can get you back into the steady state where we're coping with the symptoms on a daily basis. So anyway, that's a very long um, explanation for what we're trying to build, but it's amazing how new these ideas are. I, when I was in college, I was like, certainly by the time I'm an attending, people have this all figured out. (laughs) They do not. So, 
No, and it's it sounds brilliant because you know it's something that at least I haven't seen in my practice, and like um, I, I hope it goes into practices. This would create, this would make life so much easier for so many people, right? And it would drastically improve patients. people, including the doctors. I mean, I have many friends who are amazing doctors who are um, ER physicians, and they feel helpless as well. And you know, if you're who's not driven by ego you're you can say to the patient like I'm not experienced in this I know you have endometriosis and I I want to help you but I truly don't know yeah when you get a provider who their ego is threatened by the what they don't know then that creates a really toxic interaction for both doctor and the woman um who's not feeling believed and then you know the provider is sort of internally panicking and they just want that person like out of their triage as fast as possible. Very true. Um, and I'd like to talk more about, I know we have a couple of very important topics yeah. uh, that we want to cover, uh, but I do want to talk a little bit more about medical marijuana as a treatment for pain management and why you feel, sure. um, why you feel that it could be a breakthrough. And also, um, you know, how do you think, moving forward in future, do you see it as an integral part of pain management? So the first thing is I do. The second thing is, is I will again, disclaim that medical marijuana was not part of my gynecology training right. in any way, shape or form. So yeah. this is something I am currently learning about. I'm not like a personal user of marijuana of any kind, but I mean, the research is just mounting and somebody, you know, in anesthesia and palliative care can speak more to the mechanisms and safety profile and the pharmacology of, of THC and cannabinoids. I truly myself am undergoing like courses at the moment to, to learn more. Um, but in terms of endometriosis, you know, I've done like a pretty rudimentary literature search. There's some data that came out of, um, Mayo Clinic in Florida, where they, all we have at this time are retrospective studies where we go back, you know, they went back into the patient's charts, patients with known endometriosis and endo-related pain, and look to see which ones either use medical marijuana or recreationally use it, truly a very retrospective study. And the ones that did use it had lower pain scores, um, lower anxiety scores. We, you know, we know that anxiety and pain are like very much intertwined. People love to say like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, is this woman just anxious or is she really in pain? Well, it doesn't matter. They're like part of the same beast. Um, so, you know, without belaboring, because I don't want to speak like an expert when I'm, when I'm not, I think that the field is wide open to do right. research on this. I know anecdotally with my patients, the ones who, you know, can get in Pennsylvania, medical marijuana is totally legal. The ones who in chronic pain and anxiety are indications for it. You can be prescribed medical marijuana in Pennsylvania uh, for those conditions. And the ones who do have medical marijuana cards, they seem to have fewer flares, but that's totally anecdotal because no one's ever done that study. So it just seems so basic, you know, these women are never going to get rid of their endometriosis, especially when they're young, unless, you know, they, have this hugely definitive surgery, a hysterectomy and sometimes have their ovaries out. And that's a, that's a big surgery for a young woman 
we can talk about that more. You know, that's something yeah. that the woman should be able to decide. I think there's a lot of people who are very paternalistic and are like, I won't take out the uterus of a 23 year old in debilitating pain. And that's a really tough spot to be in as a patient and a surgeon. Um, but if I a woman herself, she's like, I really want a family. Like I do want to use my uterus in the future. Getting her through these, these pain flares with a multimodal approach is something that we really need to know how to do because endometriosis is a huge problem. The numbers are only rising because awareness of it is rising. It's selection bias. Now people know it exists. So the, the diagnoses are numbers are rising. It's not that it was never there. It's just that now we know what it is. So anyway, I think there's going to be a huge role for it. And I'm very hopeful because we're running out of things, you know, (laughs) to pharmacologically to offer these women. And when they come to your office or when they call your office and they are beside themselves in a flare. And I usually see them for like chronic, like pelvic pain or um, a bladder flare. I mean, you just, you feel helpless. You want something. And I think I rack my brain and the literature thinking like, what would be the thing? Nobody wants to give these women opioids and they don't want to take opioids. What do we have? Um, And that seems to be one of them with low side effects, low addiction potential. Yes. Yeah. No one's really found anything really bad about it yet. So, you know, why wouldn't we try? Yeah, absolutely. That's on the table. Um, the next question is about recurrent UTIs and vaginal estrogen. I know you've written a lot of studies about it and you're very well versed in this topic. I wish that I was the one that had written the studies. A lot of my very brilliant colleagues who do a lot of microbiome research are the ones that have written most of the studies. Um, but yes, I feel very passionately about this, uh, mostly because, so recurrent UTIs are a huge problem. Everyone knows they're a huge problem. There was a study that came out over the weekend. This seems like such a duh paper, but did focus groups of women with recurrent UTIs and they live with a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety waiting for the next infection to happen. And so understanding why UTIs, recurrent UTIs happen in pre-menopausal versus post-menopausal women is a huge area of research and sort of the most obvious population to study estrogen in first, of course, are postmenopausal women, because we know they have what we used to call vaginal atrophy. The proper term for that now is genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Uh, the urinary microbiome and histologic tissues, including the bladder, the urethra, and the vaginal epithelium and its tissues are now known to share much of the same microbiome and much of the same hormonally sensitive properties. So to separate the vagina and the bladder in terms of their symptoms after menopause would be, would be foolish. So it creates like a whole constellation of of symptoms that are a terrible vicious cycle, urinary urgency, which very much, you know, from what we think is caused by when there's a lack of estrogen in the vagina, the, I always tell the joke that like medical students can never put a Foley in, in the, OR, especially in premenopausal women, because they just can't find the urethra. They're like, where is it? And that's by design. In premenopausal women, the vaginal epithelium is pink, it's moist, it's very lush, it covers the urethra, which confers protection to both the very sensitive nerve endings of the urethra and from microbial invaders. Yeah. So it's like a two, a double 
pronged defense approach to UTIs in premenopausal women. They have all this nice tissue. And then postmenopausal women, they lose the estrogen and that tissue shrinks away and the urethra suddenly becomes very prominent. And not only is it, again, like it loses its protection to microbial invaders through the actual tissue covering urethra, but now you have the, um, these like very sensitive nerve endings to the, the urethelial lining of the urethra are now out to the world. They're being rubbed down by pads and underwear and just like general dryness and irritation, which causes a lot of urgency. And then the last piece of this is the microbiome shifts that occur. So the lactobacillus that were abundant in premenopausal times, lactobacillus keep the vaginal pH around four because they produce acidic byproducts and they rely on estrogen to produce those acidic byproducts. And the acidic byproducts are super important because bad things, BV causing bacteria, E. coli and other gram negatives from the rectum and yeast, they thrive in more basic environments, like more pH, like five, six, seven. So if you can keep the vagina at an acidic pH, that's another layer of protection from microbial invaders that cause UTIs. So if you put estrogen back where it used to be, you can reverse those changes. And women tend to have, generally speaking, a lot less urgency, but definitely fewer UTIs. And there've been so many RCTs, system, systematic reviews that have, have showed this in postmenopausal women. So I cannot put postmenopausal women on a singular dab of vaginal estrogen to the urethra, the introitus, which basically are side by side in women after menopause nightly. I'm like, just do it forever. You know, it just, it really can only help you. And I will make a caveat here that there's now a ton of research on the safety profile of vaginal estrogen. A lot of women are very worried. Could it cause cancer? I've had breast cancer. I've had uterine, ovarian, cervical cancer. Can I use it? And now there's a lot of research to show and society guidelines that say, yes, you can. It is safe. Even in women with a history of breast cancer, we even use it in women who are currently on, um, tamoxifen, raloxifene, or, um, an astrozole. Mm-hmm. It's safe to use in them as well. Those women tend to have tons of recurrent UTIs that are very much linked to the fact that they're on anti-estrogenic medication. And then it's also, there've been now retros- very well done retrospective data to show that women with gynecologic cancers, it's also safe. Same thing goes for women with a history of a clotting disorder or DVTs, PE. Yeah. They can also use small, very low dose of local vaginal estrogen regularly and it doesn't increase their risk of clot. So there basically are no women that can't use it or can't benefit from it. Of course, some women will be more nervous and you'll counsel them and maybe you'll use a, the lowest dose to get relief from their symptoms, but that is something that is acceptable to do. Right. Um, and then on the premenopausal side, this is where things are really emerging. Because I think clinically, a lot of us see women on oral contraceptive pills, Depo-Provera, um, breastfeeding, women, uh, women who have other reasons to be perhaps amenorrheic, we see some of the changes in their vagina mm. gets very sort of pale, dry, the skin thins out, and they can have a lot of recurrent UTIs. And so people are starting to see now, oh, like 
there are effects of some of these systemic medications on, you know, the amount of like estrogen binding proteins, the amount of bioavailable estrogen and what is it doing to their, the microbiome of their urogenital tract and will vaginal estrogen be helpful for them as well? And there's a lot of emerging evidence and research to show that that's the case. I will say anecdotally in these young women with these recurrent UTIs, you know, all we can really do for them is like throw repeated doses of antibiotics. We have some other medications, something called methenamine or hiprex. Um, And then there's lots of other things that women think will work. Cranberry pills. Yeah. (laughs) Cranberry juice. (laughs) I know. Cranberry juice. Please step away from the cranberry juice. It will not help you at all. All it will do is Yeah, it will really not help. There's like vitamin C and there's just like lots of other things people try. D-manos that in studies, maybe, maybe weekly are helpful. But I say to these women, I'm like, listen, we can't hurt by putting a little estrogen down here and see what happens. And I will say in my patients, it seems to really be helping. Um, but the premenopausal data is still being collected. So. so do you think, um, do you prescribe it for, have you ever prescribed it for cosmetic reasons? For cosmetic reasons? Not really. Um, but do you think it would, more would oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Do you think it would work? Like, you know, do you think that people would want that for cosmetic reasons or would want to try that for cosmetic reasons? You know, to make their vagina sort of more youthful? Yeah, or- yeah. Possibly. I mean, the one thing I didn't say is that I, we were focused when I was talking about it, especially for postmenopausal women on the, the UTI component, but it also the rebuilding of the vaginal epithelium, it creates so much more moisture and makes sex so much more comfortable for postmenopausal women. That's one of its other amazing um, benefits. So perhaps in that way, I've never had anyone come to me and want to be on it for, um, okay. <laughs> the, for, for the cosmetic reasons, as you said, but I suppose it's possible. And, right. you know, anytime that I do, depending on, you know, we use it a lot to promote healing mm-hmm. after vaginal surgery. So in someone who, I don't know, maybe they truly do need some sort of reconstructive, like labiaplasty, which are very rare. I almost never do those, but, or someone who's had a really awful, um, vaginal laceration during a delivery for childbirth, very quick to put them on some vaginal estrogen to promote epithelial regeneration. So that is something we do a lot. Wow. I didn't know that. Wow. That sounds amazing. Um, my last question is about uterine prolapse. Um, I know you've talked about, uh, colpocalesis as um, and how it one of the re, uh, you thought that you know prolapse um, if you if you and for those who do not know what that means it's like when you stitch the vaginal walls to prevent the prolapse in older women right am I correct yes yes that's correct um, I like to call it a vaginal tightening surgery some people call it a vaginal closure surgery I think that okay. sounds a little scary um, and just disclaimer to anyone listening that is like the last resort surgery, you know, for prolapse, but yes, that is what that is. Um, and I just thought, you know, that seems like a little bit, um, cruel to me to just like, you know, 
stitch up the <laughs> vagina. Um, yeah. And I was like, is that the last resort for the prolapse? Or like, when, what are the conditions? Uh, why do you feel that concomitant hysterectomy is a better option? Oh, well, what I was tweeting about that was there was a study that just came out. I, I do a lot of um, tweeting in partnership with the Journal of Female Public Medicine and Reconstructive yeah, Surgery. That was a recent article that came out. Um, and yeah, so just, I guess I'll back up and say that like vaginal and uterovaginal prolapse is when the vagina loses its structural integrity and the vagina is really what holds the bladder up. It holds the rectum down and it holds the uterus up in its place. And so the whole tube of the vagina has different support structures from the top to the bottom that keep everything out like hammock and hold things up at the top and you know, aging, childbirth, chronic constipation, those are all things that can contribute to losing structural integrity of the vagina. And then you feel a bulge coming down. Mm -hmm. Um, And the question is like, that is it very uncomfortable for you? And if so, there are treatment options that range from doing nothing because it's usually not very dangerous to using something like a pessary, which is almost like an orthotic for the vagina. It like gives support. It's like an internally worn um, silicone support dish or surgery. And there's a lot of different surgeries and the surgery really needs to be tailored for the woman and her life, her activity level, her sexual activity, um, you know, her medical risks for undergoing surgery, how you know safe is it for her to be on the operating room table for how long? So th- there's a lot of different ways to make that decision. But the, the tweet you're referring to for colpoclasis, colpoclasis, it does, it almost gets like a, a bad rap. It is a procedure. It's a very minimally invasive procedure. Right. Generally for women who are older, have inherent risks of undergoing anesthesia. And right. with me and her, she has decided that in terms of penetrative intercourse, she is fine foregoing that as part of her sexual life moving forward to have the lowest risk, but highest reward operation for her prolapse. So women who are undergoing colpoclasis, which yes, I call a vaginal tightening surgery. It really is. We like push the bulge back and we reconstruct the vaginal floor and the pelvic floor such that the bulge cannot fall beyond a very small vaginal opening. The outside of the vagina remains cosmetically exactly the same urination is the same. Someone looking in a mirror would have no idea they had a colpoclasis. Mm-hmm. They just can't have insertion into the vagina. And it is a very, it's a safe procedure. It can be done under like epidural if necessary, or even IV sedation it takes about an hour and a half. It's, it's short. And like I said, it's reserved for women who are older and they're not going to get this big reconstruction. They're not planning on having penetrative intercourse in the future. And they're fine with that. Um, and in any way, that study basically showed that the, um, there's a lot of people, I think, who are worried in these very older women who have very large prolapse, we call that a procedential, like the vagina is totally out, that they're at higher risk of retention. The bigger the prolapse that you put back inside, the higher risk of the retention. And that study basically showed that's not true. And the only thing that really predicts if a woman will go into urinary retention after that reconstructive surgery is if she has a hysterectomy at the same time, which makes sense because it's a longer surgery. There are more nerve, autonomic nerves that are probably involved that are 
cut or it's more swelling, lots more reasons to have retention. So that's all that showed. Right. Thank you so much, Dr. Fitzgerald. Once again, it was a brilliant lecture. I've been frantically taking notes. (laughs) I I don't know if you noticed, but I've been taking down everything quickly. Um, And I just want my audience to know that this is for educational purposes only. 